Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 135 for the week ending December 28th, 2018, the shutdown edition. While Donald Trump has shut down the government over the holidays, compliance and ethics has not been shut down. However, with Jay taking some time off to spend time with the family over the holidays, I'm going to take a solo poll at some of this week's top compliance and ethics stories. But first, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. So what are some of the stories we take a look at this week? Well, there were two FCPA settlements that we consider. Uh, Jonathan Roush reminds us that ISIS still has $400 million in cash and gold, so money laundering is going to be very important uh, against ISIS in the fight against ISIS. Tom Firestone and uh, one other author from Baker McKenzie suggest how the U.S. can prosecute foreign bribe takers. We take a look at Brexhaustion. What are four top cybersecurity issues that every small business needs to address? How about 10 ways to improve your risk assessment process? Also, the United Kingdom is requiring companies, UK-listed companies, to measure their corporate culture after January 1. So how can you do that? And then finally, we end on one of the great exploration and adventure stories, certainly of the 21st century, and that is Colin Brady traversing the Antarctic on a solo trek. Everything Compliance is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Jay Rosen is spending a well-earned week off with his family this week at Disney World, so I'm going to take a solo effort at This Week in FCPA. First up, we had two FCPA enforcement actions. The first one involved the Brazilian uh, electrical company Electrobras, which is owned 51% by the Brazilian government, and it resolved a FCPA action because former officers at uh, the company's nuclear power generation subsidiary rigged bids and arranged for private Brazilian companies to pay bribes in a project for construction of a nuclear power plant. The SEC administrative order said that Electrobras officials misused their official position in authorizing unnecessary contractors and inflating the cost of an infrastructure project at Electronuclear. In return, the construction companies paid the former Electronuclear officers some $9 million in bribes. Secondly, we had another FCPA case. Uh, which comes to us from Sam Rubenfeld at the Wall Street Journal, which involved Polycom. Uh, the American technology provider settled a FCPA books and records and internal, internal accounting controls provisions with the SEC this week. It also received a declination with a disgorgement from the Department of Justice. 
uh, Polygon, Polycom agreed to pay, disgorge about $10.7 million and $1.8 million in uh, interest with a penalty of $3.8 million to the SEC. It also dis- uh, disgorged monies to the uh, U.S. Postal Service Inspection Consumer Fraud Fund of $10.15 million and the U.S. Treasury of $10.15 million. So with a total $31 million of disgorgement for bribery committed by employees of the company's subsidiaries in China. It had some very interesting facts that certainly should be studied by every compliance practitioner. Uh, first of all was the uh, underlying conduct uh, occurred from a company called Plantronics from 2008, I believe, to 2016. The company had been sold to private equity and then was uh, obtained by Polycom. So the first question is, how did all of this occur uh, with two companies purchasing uh, the offending uh, entity? Uh, Where was their pre-acquisition due diligence? Uh, But beyond the... uh, failures in pre-acquisition due diligence, we had a subsidiary who was using a parallel deal tracking and email system outside of the company approved systems. Sales personnel were told by managers to use their personal email addresses instead of Polycom addresses, email addresses when discussing sales opportunities. The company failed to devise and maintain a sufficient system of internal accounting controls and lacked an effective and a corruption compliance program with regard to its Chinese sales operations. Uh, however, Polycom made a great comeback, obviously by obtaining the declination of dis- with disgorgement through its self-disclosure, cooperation, remediation, and disgorgement. So lots of lessons learned from the compliance perspective. Um, you have to wonder about how much uh, or how important compliance and ethics is to a company that allows its subsidiary to literally set up an entire system to bypass internal controls. It's going to be interesting to see what that impact is on the Goldman Sachs 1MDB investigation. Next up, an article in the FCPA blog by Tom Firestone and Maria Pinakovska, both from Baker and McKinsey. And this is a second part of a two-part series about prosecuting foreign bribe takers. And what I'd like to focus on in this article is um, how bringing the FCPA or other U.S. legislation in in line by criminalizing foreign bribery would serve three valuable purposes, at least as articulated by the authors. First, even if bribe takers are never extradited or prosecuted to the United States, a U.S. indictment would make it more difficult for them to travel, or at least if they tried to travel to a company that has a country that has an extradition treaty, Uh, with the U.S. and spend their ill-gotten gains. And here you only need to think about uh, the former CFO, Juliet Ming of Huawei. Second, an indictment could be used to support other penalties, such as sanctions under the Global Magnitsky Act, which applies to foreign government officials responsible for serious human rights abuses and corruption. And third, U.S. charges would certainly put pressure on foreign governments to bring domestic charges against the bribe takers, which unfortunately, as the OECD has noted, happens only in about 20% of uh, situations where there's a bribery conviction as to the bribe payer. So it's a very interesting article. It is a second part of a two-part series in the FCPA blog, and there's a larger article uh, by the authors, Two to Tango, 
attacking the demand side of bribery, which they recently had published. I certainly commend that to everyone to uh, take a look at and uh, think about the supply side of bribery and how such laws could really impact um, and help U.S. companies going forward. I learned a new term this week from my Compliance Week colleague, Neil Hodge, Brexhaustion. As Jonathan Armstrong has articulated in an Everything Compliance prod- podcast, really the, uh, the only thing that sa- is saving the U.K. from having the worst political system in the world is the, currently the United States' non-functional political system. So it was interesting to see where Neil thought we might be with Brexit. And um, it's uh, running pretty quickly towards a disaster. There's been no vote on the final Brexit plan. The Prime Minister, Theresa May, had to pull it because she didn't have support in Parliament uh, for a scheduled vote. However, she has now uh, survived a no-confidence vote from the Tory party. Uh, Many in the U.K., uh, really admire, sympathize her plucky determination to plow on and push for it, uh, even uh, though it uh, does not seem that uh, it will be passed. However, uh, there are hardliners uh, such as uh, Jacob Marie's Moog, who won a hard Brexit, or the National, excuse me, Northern Irish Democratic Unionist Party, uh, who does not want uh, Northern Ireland to have significant or different re- regulations to the rest of the United Kingdom. The Labor Party, it's not clear what they want, uh, only something different. And, of course, businesses want certainty. So um, right now, with the March 21 deadline uh, really coming much faster, uh, a big train wreck may be coming. Uh, if you have not started your contingency planning, you had better uh, begin so. The United Kingdom apparently is not really very far along in this, uh, unlike the EU, which has been preparing for not only Brexit, but now a, a no-treaty Brexit uh, as well, where on December 19th, the EC implemented its no-deal contingency plans, which consists of 14 measures aimed at ensuring continuity in financial services, transports, customs, and climate policy. So um, we can only hope that uh, there will be some plan or something will be put in place or agreed to by the British Parliament. If there is a no-deal Brexit, I think everyone understands the potential uh, disaster that could be for the uh, United Kingdom and the economic uh, policies of the government and how it will impact businesses going forward. Cybersecurity continues to become uh, more prevalent, more important, and more of an issue going forward into 2019. Pamela Passman has wrote a very interesting and I thought very helpful article in the Ethics and Compliance Matters blog of Navex Global entitled Four Cybersecurity Issues Every Small Business Should Address Going Into 2019. Around cyber readiness, uh, she identifies four key issues. Number one, Authentication, a weak password is an easy access point to your most sensitive information and system. Two, patching. Patches are updates to your software systems that can, can, can contain important securities measures. Three, phishing. Phishies, phishing is an email-borne attack that attempts to use your email account to do something nefarious. And three, USBs, or excuse me, four USBs. These are obviously uh, removable devices that many people use to uh, move uh, documents around, but they can be gateways for malware into your uh, computer. 
So what are some of the, some of the things you can focus on for a cyber readiness program approach? Number one, focus on preventative measures for, for your company and outline actions to execute when incidents occur. Two, create an organizational culture with cyber readiness embedded in how your people do their jobs. Three, enable organizations to reduce cyber risk in practical ways, aligning with nature and mission of your organization. And finally, document, document, document. There's nothing that is more important than documenting your efforts. If an attack occurs, you certainly want to be able to show the regulators, shareholders, stakeholders, and uh, perhaps people that would sue you that you took all reasonable steps to prevent a cyber attack. Next up, we have uh, a great article from the always great author, Jim Deloach. Jim Deloach uh, is <clears throat> practices in Houston, and he is one of the top commentators on internal controls. But uh, today I want to talk about an article that he posted on Corporate Compliance Insights entitled, 10 Ways to Improve Your Risk Management Process, Guidance for Executive Management on the Board. So what are some of the ways you can uh, uh, move to help management and directors maximize the value derived from a risk assessment process? So I'm going to lay out all 10 for you. Number one, involve the appropriate people. Uh, surveys have conducted uh, have been conducted without exception that different senior executives operating unit and functional leaders often have different perspectives regarding risk. Therefore, you need to talk to everybody. Two, and those that are uh, two, reduce the danger of groupthink. The risk assessment process should encourage an open and positive dialogue among key executives and stakeholders, identifying and evaluating opportunities and risks. Three, Focus comprehensively on the distinctive dimensions of your strategic risks. What are the three dimensions to a true strategic risk? The implications from your strategy, the possibility of strategy not aligning with your company's mission, vision, and core values, and three, the risks to executing the strategies. All three dimensions must be considered if a company expects to avoid unintended consequences that could uh, lose uh, or create a failure. Four, Understand the assumptions underlining the strategy. Both board and executives are navigating a risk management process should consider how the organization's strategy and risk appetite work in tandem and how they will drive behavior across the organization. Five, consider the impact of disruptive change. The rapid pace of change in the global business environment presents risks for entities of all types. Have you considered those for you? Six, consider the appropriate criteria to act to assess high-impact, low-likelihood risks. When considering extreme risk events, the operative question is, how resilient is our organization if one or more occur? I am in Houston, and hurricanes are something that we uh, think about a lot, particularly after Harvey. So it's uh, perhaps a lower likelihood event, but it's certainly high impact. How have you prepared for it? Seven, understand the sources of risk. One of the most difficult tasks in risk management is translating a risk assessment into actionable steps for your business. How do you do so? Eight, don't forget emerging risk. A key process for identifying emerging risk should be in place to supplement your ongoing risk management process. For the compliance practitioner, this is absolutely mandatory. Nine, integrate risk considerations into your decision making. As important as the risk 
assessment process is, it may be just as important for the decision-making process to consider the impact of major decisions on your organization's risk profile. And number 10, never end with just a list. An effective risk assessment always leads to the formulation of risk responses to close the gap that you identify. And that means when you have identified that gap, you should move forward to uh, fill it. Next up was a very interesting op-ed piece in the Financial Times entitled Taking the Measure of Good Corporate Culture. What I found so interesting about it was, uh, first of all, from January 1 forward, a revised corporate governance code will apply to all UK-listed companies. It now states that a board's duty is to establish the company's purpose, values, and strategy and satisfy itself that these and its culture are aligned. So for every U.S. company doing business in the United Kingdom, and that's almost any U.S. company doing business internationally, uh, if you have a U.K. subsidiary, this is going to apply. So how are you going to measure the corporate culture? Are you going to take a quantitative approach? Or are you going to take a qualitative approach? Are you going to engage in surveys? Uh, are you going to um, ask uh, for, uh, to look at your company's footprint outside, looking at public information? Um, how are you going to do this? These are all questions that need to be answered. I would suggest that you uh, consider a company that has engaged in culture surveys as a starting point. And uh, the op-ed piece ends with the following, that wise directors will arm themselves with a variety of tools. They need to ask questions, uh, but also uh, you need to question embedded assumptions. You need to trust your middle managers uh, as communicators. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, bear in mind that culture is not just a snapshot or a spreadsheet, it's, it's a story. It's hard to rewrite, but if you fail to read it, an unhappy ending is virtually guaranteed. So what are you doing around your corporate culture? How are you moving to assess it? Uh, If you have any operations in the UK, this is something that you need to consider now. Finally, I'd like to end on a story that I, I think is one of the great adventure stories of certainly the 21st century and maybe even um, since men have been going to the Antarctic. And this week, Colin O'Brady uh, covered uh, or concluded a 920-mile journey across the Antarctic. He is the first person to literally walk or trek across the Antarctic uh, solo and unaided. He did a 54-day track trek, rather, uh, finishing with a stunning 77.5-mile, 32-hour burst uh, to bring him uh, all the way across the Antarctic. Uh, this has been something that men have engaged in or dreamed about, rather, uh, ever since Ernest Shackleton. Uh, I've written about uh, Antarctic exploration and trekking. It's perhaps one of the great last firsts left in the world and something that uh, ev- literally everyone since uh, Raoul Odmanson from Norway, Robert Falcon Scott of England, Shackleton, and Frank Worsley, who attempted to do this uh, earlier this decade and died for his efforts. Uh, Henry Worsley, uh, one of his uh, heirs, uh, also uh, made an attempt and came within 126 miles of the finish. Uh, So uh, a great, great, great effort by Colin O'Brady. Also a shout-out to another Englishman, Ben Saunders, who uh, made the same quest uh, in 2000 and 
17. And finally, uh, Englishman Lewis, Ru- Lewis Rudd, who is still on the ice, attempting to do so. Um, right now, uh, literally one of the, the great uh, adventures, exploration uh, in Antarctic history, and a big shout-out to Colin O'Brady. So, uh, are you in the post-holiday blahs? Well, if you are, Jay and I uh, did the compliance review of the movie Elf for Popcorn and Compliance, which we released before Christmas, but it may be something that you'd want to uh, take a look at if you want to cheer yourself up. Uh, It turns out there were lots of compliance lessons around Elf, and it's obviously uh, a holiday favorite, so uh, please check it out. It's available on the FCPA Compliance Report, iTunes, JD Supra, Panoply, and YouTube. And finally, to start the new year off right, how about the Compliance Masterclass Training? I'm putting on a session on January 28th and 29th in San Francisco. It's hosted by Jonathan Marks at Baker and Tilly, and Jonathan will be joining me for the training. If you're interested in the literally the top training uh, around having the best practices compliance program your organization can have, this is the training for you. I talk about the nuts and bolts of compliance. How do you design, create, and implement a best practices compliance program? This is not a theoretical exercise on what the FCPA is, what it says, what perhaps people want it to say, or anything else. This is actually how you do compliance. So if you're interested in the nuts and bolts of compliance, this is the uh, training event for you. I've got links to it posted in the show notes. You can email me if you'd like more information. I'm happy to share the agenda with you going forward. So this has been the episode 135 of This Week in FCPA. Uh, Once again, Jay uh, is down with the fam in Disney World, so took a solo effort at it. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will join us next week when Jay returns, and we will have our first This Week in FCPA episode of 2019. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.